Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. There's a nursing shortage in Michigan hospitals, and it's actually acute enough that patients' lives are on the line. Michigan Radio's Kate Wells has been reporting about it and will join us today to discuss. Then we'll talk about another worker shortage, this one at Wayne County Government, and how it is affecting service delivery. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And I'm really glad you've joined us today. When you think about the current state of work coming out of the pandemic, we often talk about the fact that fewer of us seem as motivated to work as maybe we were before. Lots of folks are preferring to work remotely, and there are an awful lot of people who've just left the workforce altogether. And then you have stories about things like quiet quitting. No doubt the relationship between us as individuals and the places that we work has really changed over the last three years. And it'll be a while, I think, before all that sorts itself out and we actually know what the future of work is going to look like. But there's a part of this story that we don't talk nearly as much about. And that's the effect of people coming out of the workforce on people who are served by those in the workforce. What happens when there aren't enough police officers or firefighters? What happens when there's not someone to work the counter at the grocery store? A little later in the show, we're going to talk with Wayne County Commissioner Ray Basham about the staffing shortage issues they're having in Wayne County and how that's affecting service delivery in a surprising number of places. But first, we want to talk about hospitals, hospitals here in Michigan, and the nurses who staff those hospitals for all kinds of critical care. Right now, new reports by Michigan nurses highlight the desperate need for more nurses on every shift. Per reporting by Michigan Radio's Kate Wells, nurses across the state say there are dangerous levels of understaffing and they're becoming the norm. And this is true even though hospitals are no longer overwhelmed by COVID itself, Now they're just overwhelmed by the COVID hangover, I guess we might call it. So why are these shortages happening? How long has this been going on? And what are hospitals doing to mitigate the issue? 
Here to discuss all of this with us is Michigan radio reporter Kate Wells. Kate, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. So we've been hearing about short staffing for a long time now, as I said, especially, though, when it comes to nurses. But it seems like things are really coming to a head right now. So tell us what's happening inside these hospitals and why is it more dangerous now than it has been in recent times? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Bottom line is nurses say that it is more dangerous to be a patient in a hospital right now than it has really, I mean, they're seen in the last six years. And I'd make first a pretty strong distinction between motivation or really even like pandemic burnout that we see in some other workforces versus what nurses say is really their absolute best attempts to do this job. They're, they're really feeling that this job is a calling and a passion for them and that they feel like this, is, this job is being made literally impossible for them to do the way that they want to do. And mm. they, they say that they're just seeing really stark realities right now. There was a recent poll came out earlier this year from the Michigan Nurses Association, which is one of the largest unions in the state. And it said that 42% of nurses polled know of a Michigan patient who died because staff were stretched too thin. That's double what the similar poll found in 2016. A majority in this year's poll also said they are aware of medication errors, of infections, of other complications due to understaffing. And while it's really, you know, difficult to draw a straight line from something as complicated as, say, at the death of a patient in a hospital to understaffing, what this underscores and tells us pretty starkly is that this is reaching such critical levels that nurses say it is impacting patients. And I think if you've just been a patient in a hospital recently, you know, whether you have, you were one of the parents who took your kid in during the RSV surge and had to wait in the emergency room for hours, or if you've been a patient who's gone to the ER for yourself and had to wait potentially for days in the emergency room until an inpatient bed opened up, you have seen this yourself. It is it is impossible to ignore, really, from a patient level at this point. Mm. So, so I want to go back to something you just were saying about nurses saying that they just can't manage the things that they're being asked to manage. Uh, talk more about what is going on inside hospitals that's making it so difficult. If it's if the shortages aren't about uh, people just not being able to work or not wanting to work, what is driving, what's driving them away from their jobs? Yeah, well, it's really important to note that this did not begin with the pandemic. This is something that has been building for years. One nursing expert I talked to at the University of Michigan says, you know, this has really been something that they have been seeing the writing on a wall for a decade now. But COVID sort of was the gasoline on this fire. It's, it, it's going to sound boring, but it has to do with just the realities of hospital financing. Every time a hospital needs to cut money, right, if they need to improve their bottom line, they one of their biggest costs overall is always going to be labor. But the labor is going to be really different between whether it's a nurse or a physician. So a physician is going to be able to order expensive tests, right, or they're going to be able to do procedures that they can bill and drive revenue for a hospital. Nurses, however, can't do that. They're not revenue drivers for hospitals. And so nursing budgets have always been a really popular place for hospitals to feel like they can make cuts 
and not necessarily see an immediate impact on the bottom line. Nurses, of course, would argue that you do end up seeing that impact on the bottom line when patients simply do worse. But especially when COVID hit and we had all of these elective procedures stop, when we had a temporary period where nobody was coming into the emergency room, we saw a lot of hospitals and in Michigan too, where what they did to try and save money in that immediate impact was lay off a lot of nurses. Mm. So that then was kind of a ripple effect, right? You're laying off all these nurses. You are also giving retirement incentives to the more experienced nurses to try and get them to leave the workforce. The nurses who are left are completely overwhelmed. They're caring for patients who are incredibly sick. They're seeing so many patients die left and right here. It was a deeply traumatic time to be in, in healthcare. And then they're also, you know, suddenly all of these hospitals that really, really needed workers too, especially ones that were hit deeply by COVID. And we saw a lot of uh, staffing agencies start offering lucrative contracts where nurses can make a lot more if they would leave to go be travel nurses. So if you are one of the nurses who has not been laid off, who has not been given incentives to retire, and you suddenly feel like it's impossible for you to care for these patients who are, are dying around you, it's going to be really tempting to feel like your hospital doesn't care about you. So why shouldn't you go take this travel contract? Right, right. So I, I want to inject a phrase into our conversation here, and it's a phrase that uh, nurses have told you they're using to describe how they feel. Uh, they, they say they're feeling a moral injury. Uh, I mean, it's such a, yeah. a descriptive way to talk about uh, your work, right? Uh, but, but, but describe what that, what that means to them, uh, why they feel so deeply emotionally affected uh, by yeah. all of this. Go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, nurses 201 will pretty much say to you that this is their calling, that this is the work that they want to be doing. And what we have seen in the last few years is these waves, not just COVID, but waves of increasingly sick people, what they call high acuity patients, coming in in larger and larger volumes to the emergency room, or like we saw with the most recent RSV surge. And the simple reality is that there are not enough nurses to safely and properly care for all of those patients. So if you are a nurse who is trying to care for somebody in the emergency room or on the ICU, that job becomes almost impossible. I've talked with nurses who just break down in tears on this job because they feel like they're not being able to give care the way that they want to. I've talked to nurses recently who said they leave every day feeling horrible, like that this isn't the kind of work they signed up to do, but that they are simply stretched too thin to be able to give the kind of care they want. And it's that that really fuels a lot of burnout. You see it especially in, you know, we talk a lot about needing to be able to recruit new nurses to to sort of like improve the pipeline of people coming in. I talked with one researcher who says, you know, younger nurses, the people that you hope will stay for 20, 30 years, these nurses are now the most likely to leave because they come in, they feel overwhelmed, and they feel like they can't do the work they want to do. So it becomes this revolving door. Mm. I'm talking with Kate Wells. She's a reporter at Michigan Radio. She's recently been reporting on Michigan nurses saying that the situation in the hospitals where they work is becoming particularly dire because of understaffing issues. Uh, there is a nursing shortage, uh, that one that is uh, more acute 
than the ones uh, that we typically see in in our hospitals here in Michigan. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know. Are you a a nurse who works at a hospital here in Michigan? Give us a sense of what work has been like for you in the past few years. Are you someone who recently decided that you couldn't continue in a hospital in your profession? Uh, what are you doing instead? And uh, are you finding relief from the things that you were experiencing in the hospital, uh, being a nurse in another context? Uh, also, give us a call and let us know if you've been a patient at a hospital recently and noticed how short-staffed the nurses are. Uh, are you concerned about hospitals that maybe literally don't have enough nurses to provide the care that people need uh, when they show up. Uh, And why do you think this is happening in our hospitals? Uh, The number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Kate, I want to, before we get to listeners, uh, play a clip of a conversation that you had uh, with a nurse, an RN at McLaren Central Michigan Hospital. Tell us about Tara Chilcott. Yeah, and Tara Chicoli is an ICU nurse at, uh, like you mentioned, McLaren in uh, Mount Pleasant. And this is one of two hospitals uh, recently where nurses have voted to authorize a potential strike. So I was talking with Tara about this and asking her a little bit about some of her recent experiences. And she described recent shifts where she would show up to work and she would be the only nurse in the ICU or that she'd be a nurse on the ICU and they would have moved sort of like a, what they call a float nurse, somebody who is from another floor, another department, but is kind of in there to, to help out. And she talked about one of these instances recently on a, on a shift where she had this other float nurse, but the nurse really wasn't trained in terms of intensive care. And Tara was in one room working with a patient who was on a ventilator and needed her absolute full attention. But there were other patients on the floor that this other nurse who was not trained in ICU care to the same extent that Tara was, was coming into the room every so often and saying like, hey, what should I do? How, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's listen to what Tara had to say. Because she's not used to taking care of those kind of patients. So on top of dealing with what I'm dealing with, I'm also having to think outside the room that I'm currently in, I should be solely focused on. Yeah, Kate, you can hear the strain and anxiety in in, in her voice there, how, how stressful the situation is. Yeah, I spoke with nurses in the last week who told, literally used the term scared. I spoke with nurses, one of the other places where nurses have recently voted to authorize a potential strike is my Michigan Medical Center in Alma. And nurses there who are not ER nurses talked about essentially being sent down to the emergency room uh, because, they, you know, unlike other parts of the hospital, the emergency room can never say we're full, we can't take more patients but that the ER there was so short-staffed that sometimes these nurses from other departments would go down there and there would be no emergency room nurses, you know, none of that core team who had that experience and could tell them what to do, that it would be just these sort of substitute nurses and nurses who were there on temporary contracts, and that these nurses felt genuinely fearful that they did not know how to be able to take care of patients the way they wanted to. Yeah. 
Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Kate Wells of Michigan Radio. We are going to also get to your calls and your comments on social media. We're going to start with Sean in Royal Oak, who has been a nurse for over 30 years. We're going to hear uh, also from Abigail in Berkeley, who's been an emergency nurse, as she has PTSD from working during COVID. Uh, Cliff in Ann Arbor, Jimmy in Birmingham, we'll get to you as well, if you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and right now we're talking about nursing shortages here in Michigan. We've got Kate Wells, a reporter with Michigan Radio, with us. She's recently been reporting on Michigan nurses, saying that more patients are in jeopardy because of understaffing issues in their hospitals. We also want to hear from you during the conversation. Call and tell us if you are a nurse working in a hospital right now. Tell us what the conditions are like. Uh, Do you feel Uh, like there is more pressure on you because of things like understaffing. Uh, Also, we'd love to hear from people who have been patients at hospitals recently. Have you noticed short staffing uh, by the nurses? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social, uh, to Twitter, and hashtag us. Let's start today with Sean in Royal Oak. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, how are you? Thank I'm good. you for having me on the show. Sure. Um, I just I just wanted to make a comment because I've been a nurse for thirty years now. It's hard to believe, but it seems like it just gets worse and worse. And no matter what type of nursing you've done, I I've been a nurse in the I've worked in the ER, I've worked in rehabilitation, I've worked in nursing homes, I've worked on the floor, I've done it all. Um, and I just no matter what, you're always giving way too many patients than you can deal with. And you have to remember, people need medicine. They have to, you know, there's machines that have to be, you have to understand how to use them. You have to understand what they do, how they're keeping people alive, what to do if something happens to this person, if they stop breathing, if they have a sudden blood clot that happens. I mean, there's just so many things that you have to deal with. Mm. And then nurses are constantly getting distracted because there's not enough support staff. You have to take care of people, give them personal care. Um, you're standing on your feet for 12 hours. You you know, things that you shouldn't have to do, you have to do because you're the nurse and you're the one-stop all. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, Sean, overwhelming. Sean, I, I want to hear a little about your current work situation, if you're comfortable talking about it. Um, um I am and I'm not because right now I'm not working in the hospital. Uh Um, I left the hospital just before the pandemic. It just, 
it became very overwhelming. It did not work for my work-life balance. And um, <clears throat> I tried to um, stay in the hospital as long as I could. But even in special procedures, it was it was just overwhelming. Wow, wow. So, staffing cuts, so not you, enough support staff. Have you been able to find relief doing something else, something outside the hospital? Is it better? Uh, no. It's not. You, Wow. No, even in home care or when you work outside the hospital, if you're dealing with patients, the management wants to give you a lot of patients. Like they, I had jobs where I had to drive from Detroit to um, way out in Waterford, like and within an hour. Like you're you're going to see a patient in Detroit. You're you know you have to do a wound care, and this person has so many wounds in the end you have only so much time to do that and then you're supposed to go out to waterford at 3 p.m during rush hour traffic to get to this other person who needs iv infusion it's just this is a lack of understanding on the part of management it's um it's just it's just I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's been going on for decades, and Sean, I, I can I, I can hear oh. the exasperation in your in your voice, and I really really appreciate you calling and and sharing that experience with us, both in the hospital and outside. Uh, Kate Wells, uh, the, the idea that she was unable to find a better situation outside the hospital really, I think, reinforces how acute the problem is, that, that this is not just about <clears throat> working in, in a hospital and the pressures there. This is about the pressures of being a nurse when there just aren't enough anywhere. It's really an issue that we are seeing across healthcare. I mean, one of the reasons that it is so hard to move people out of the hospital, right? Like when it used to be that when somebody was able to essentially be, be uh, leave the hospital from an inpatient unit. Now we're seeing more and more that places like long-term care centers, nursing homes, that these places are so short-staffed too because, because nurses are experiencing exactly those kinds of conditions that it's really hard to be able to even get those patients to be able to have a place to go when they leave the hospital. And so that creates a backup, right? If you can't dismiss a patient if you can't you know check them out and send them back to their nursing home then they have to wait in that in that hospital bed and meanwhile you know the wait builds up down in the emergency room as more and more patients need to be admitted but there's nowhere for them to go so the ripple effects are just like she's saying not just inside a hospital right now yeah yeah sean uh, I, I really appreciate the call and you're sharing your experience and of course we hope things somehow get better you at some point. Um, let's go next to Cliff in Ann Arbor. Cliff, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I had about a, I'll try and cut it down to two minutes, but I was doing travel nursing for about four and a half years, about two and a half before COVID hit. And when COVID hit, it was very stressful, you know, having to do your normal job. And now you got to gown up and wear N95s and can't breathe. And I wear glasses, so that was very difficult. You got to put on a big capper helmet um, that has a filter on it. It was just frustrating and, you know, I floated to three different floors as a travel nurse and by the time I left about three months ago, there was only about two full-time nurse aides wow. still employed at, on those floors because everybody had left 
and uh, they started floating me to ICU, and I had no ICU experience, but the hospital was great. They kept our ratios about four or five to one, which was a blessing, um, but I did get burnt out even though I was making very good money as a travel nurse, and so I started hospice nursing about five weeks ago, and the last little point I'll make about that is it's very interesting how old, you know, many patients are in the hospitals, but hospice our company is extremely low census now because of COVID. A lot of different patients that may have been hospice eligible end up catching COVID and passing away. And then people get so scared of people coming into their homes that we're actually kind of struggling. I'm the only full-time case manager at my facility, my office location. So, so essentially you've found some relief, but it's because of circumstances that aren't the best for the patients either. Is that the right way to think about that, Cliff? I think you're correct. I mean, the hospitals need staff. About 75% of their ICU was all travelers. Um, But it's just, it's really difficult to be anxious when you're going to work and then having your heart pounding when you leave because you're just so excited to be going home. It's just, it's hard to do that for a long time. Yeah. Cliff, uh, I'm glad you called, and uh, I love uh, the, the the candor that uh, that you and the other callers are are willing to indulge here to talk about what you're what you're experiencing. Uh, Kate, I want to talk about why hospitals, uh, in some cases, are firing and laying off nurses. Why is it that nurses cost so much? Um, and are the place to find savings, and maybe doctors or, or, or other kinds of hospital staff aren't as affected? Sure. Well, we, we're not seeing the same number of firings or layoffs really at all as we were really during those first, like, you know, six to 12 months of COVID mm-hmm. when these hospitals lost some of their revenue, which was coming from elective procedures, which was coming from, you know, people coming into the emergency room. And physicians are able to to drive revenue for hospitals more directly, right? They can uh, do an expensive procedure. They can order a bunch of expensive tests and hospitals can bill for that. Nurses, it's a much more subtle way of making and saving money for the hospitals. It does happen, but it's not as direct. And so when hospitals are looking for kind of a short-term fix for years now, even before the pandemic, one of the places they've looked to is that nurse budget. And and nurses, like we've been hearing from, will tell you, you know, this really was exacerbated during the pandemic, but this isn't the kind of thing that just started suddenly when COVID hit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can work you into the conversation that way. Big Neo says shortages in all jobs could be solved by recognizing and respecting those workers and increasing their pay. All teachers and first responders should be making $100,000 to start. The problem with that is the haves want to ensure that there are as many have-nots as possible. Michael on Twitter says, I have relatives in healthcare in hospitals. They've noticed financial decisions having huge impacts on decision-making, including private equity management making decisions. Is this impacting this? What is the role of the profit motive? Uh, Kate, that's a great question. Uh, There's been a lot of debate about uh, whether hospitals should be nonprofits or for-profits here in Detroit. Uh, the Detroit Medical Center uh, is an example of a former nonprofit that has 
become a for-profit, and there are a lot of folks who say that uh, you know that care has suffered as a result. Does this relate to the problem keeping nurses and staffing levels at, where they should uh, in our hospitals? Well, yes and no. So yes, there is tremendous pressure on hospitals, really just like a radical change in the last 10, 15 years that's just continuing to speed up. Tremendous pressure on hospitals to maintain the bottom line, to have cash on hand, to have good revenue coming in, especially because we're seeing, you know, right now only 20% of hospitals right now are independent. So there's less and less distinction even between a hospital that is say, profit via nonprofit. Those same pressures exist inside a nonprofit health system. It's, you know, we're seeing more and more of these mega mergers, right? We saw Spectrum and Beaumont merge to become a new health system. We saw the University of Michigan health system buy up Sparrow. These systems are becoming larger and larger and larger. And as they do so, the nurses will tell you that the feeling that something is just, you know, a localized community hospital becomes harder and harder to maintain because they are part of these much larger organizations. And, you know, to the hospitals, they will say, we, they'll say, you know, they're really struggling financially, that COVID was uh, made a major impact on the bottom line because they had all of these changes to elective procedures the Michigan Health and Hospital Association will tell you that, you know, last year alone, Michigan hospitals saw a $1 billion increase in just labor costs. But these hospitals have also gotten a lot of taxpayer money since the pandemic began. Michigan hospitals alone have gotten over $3 billion in state and federal money. And the Michigan Health and Hospital Association just put in another request for another $100 million in state funding. So, these kinds of financial pressures are what hospital management and administration will talk about when they get into these contract disputes with nurses. They'll say, you know, our hands are tied. We've lost this money during the pandemic. We cannot, you know, meet some of the requests that you're making for these increase in what you say, what the nurses say would be competitive salaries that would allow them to recruit and retain nurses on a better level. But then you talk with the nurses, and the nurses find these claims of, uh, you know, not exactly poverty, but like financial hardship to be just hard to stomach. A place like McLaren Healthcare System, which is a massive healthcare system, it's got 15 hospitals, it's got a bunch of other sites, you know, they will pay their chief executive eight point eight something million dollars mm-hmm. in a single year. And, the, and that's a nonprofit system. And the nurses will look at that and say that it is hard for them to feel like they are being valued, to feel like McLaren can't actually meet the request that they're making because of financial hardship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Let's go to Abigail in Berkeley. Abigail, what's on your mind? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just identify so much with what you're talking about. I've worked for nonprofits. I've worked for small community hospitals, and now I'm working for a larger uh, nonprofit. Um, In Michigan, I've been a nurse for about five years working in emergency rooms, and I worked through COVID and uh, all of of the trauma that went along with that. Um, I've definitely seen that hospitals are going to value their nurses as much as they're forced to. And um, unfortunately, nurses are going to leave. 
when they aren't being valued and they're going to go elsewhere where ratios are better. And nurses talk to each other. They know where nurses treat nurses well. And um, there are definitely hospital systems that have a reputation among nurses as uh, throwing their staff under the bus and not treating them well. And um, I'm really glad that it sounds like hopefully unions are going to be getting stronger in this state. I've worked um, in a state that had a nurses union in the past. I I don't have a, a nurses union at the moment, but I would love to, again, be part of a nurses union because I've seen how much they can help, um, and I've seen what a difference it makes. Wow. So, uh, Abigail, I want to I wanna have you talk just a little more about the experience that you had during COVID and what you did to, again, kind of find some relief and find some space, or, or whether you've been able to do that. Yeah, um, going through that is just, you know, I hope nothing, well, I, I hope I will never have to go through anything like that again, literally asking yourself if, you know, if it's worth your life, if it's worth your children's life to continue your job. Um, at the beginning, we had no idea what we were facing. The protocols changed every day. The treatments were not established. We didn't know what we were doing. The CDC literally was changing their guidelines day to day. So we just did our best, and um, and it was terrifying. I had rashes all over my body. We were carrying dead bodies out to the overflow morgue truck in the back of the hospital. Um, I'll never forget the sight of that. And mm. I'm, you know, I... There was staff that died. There were people that, young people that I worked with who died from COVID early on. Um, it seems like the strains that we're facing now are so much less dangerous than they were at the beginning, um, which is great. But, yeah. you know, at the beginning, we just, we didn't know what we were doing, and it was really scary. Yeah. Well, uh, Abigail, I'm I'm glad you you called to join the conversation, and again, I, I I'm with you in in hoping that you know none of us has to endure something like the pandemic again. But but in particular, those who took care of all of us during the pandemic, I think, uh, need particular particular relief. Um, Kate, can you talk a little about what hospitals? say they are prepared to do to deal with this problem, given that, um, as you point out, it's something that has been going on since before the pandemic. Uh, it's more acute now, but it's reaching these levels where it's going to start really affecting care and, and put people's lives in jeopardy. What What is the solution? Yeah, so the solution differs depending on who you ask. I want to say... It's important to say that in, on an individual level, when you talk to these hospitals like McLaren or My Michigan Alma, you know they will say this is absolutely untrue that there is unsafe care happening, that things are very safe. I want to read you a statement that I got from McLaren. It said, it's unfortunate that unions continue to use staff shortages to create a false narrative of unsafe patient care. It's irresponsible of the union to suggest that understaffing alone leads to patient deaths at McLaren Central Michigan or any McLaren hospital, as there are no patient deaths related to understaffing. 
So when you talk to hospitals on an individual level, they will say, yes, understaffing is a problem, but things are still safe here. Mm -hmm. The Michigan Health and Hospital Association, which is the statewide hospital industry group in Michigan, held a press conference in December where they talked about just how bad this staffing crisis had gotten. They said Michigan has lost 1,700 staffed beds since 2020. And, you know, they will, when it's not an individual hospital, they'll talk about the impact this is having. They'll say, you know, this is the biggest crisis facing healthcare. They'll say this, quote, creates a cascade of problems from longer wait times in the emergency department, reduced services, particularly in rural areas, and more difficulty transferring patients to the appropriate care setting. But when it comes to solutions, one thing we're seeing the MHA ask for is more public money. Last week, they submitted a request to the state legislature for another $100 million. They say additional requests are coming that will help them recruit and retain staff. But what you'll hear from places like the Michigan Nurses Association is that putting more public money into hospitals is not going to fix the fundamental problem. They'll say that what they support is the idea of legislation that would mandate required patient staffing ratios. Mm. Now, that wouldn't be a silver bullet. It would be probably hard to implement. But they say that this is the kind of important step that we need to have, especially because so many nurses aren't in unions. They say there needs to be a fundamental requirement for hospitals to only take so many patients or only have so many patients per nurse in order for it to be safe. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Kate Wells, uh, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Uh, Keep up the great reporting, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to shift subjects just slightly. We're going to talk about staffing shortages that are going on in Wayne County government and how they are affecting service delivery there. Ray Basham, uh, Wayne County Commissioner for District 14, is going to join us to talk about that. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined. Wayne County also faces uh, the problem of not having enough employees. Right now, one in four county jobs is vacant, with more than half of those positions in the county's criminal justice system. Why are these jobs vacant is one of the questions, and what does Wayne County need to be doing to fill them? To talk about all of this, we've got Ray Basham here with us. He is a Wayne County Commissioner for District 14. Ray, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah. So uh, talk about why there's a shortage of staff working for Wayne County. How did how did we get here? Uh, it didn't happen overnight. It's not going to be fixed overnight. Uh, we uh, have actually been on a trend that's actually coming back now, but but uh, you, you can't just cut health care and cut wages and expect uh, to keep your employees. Uh, and, and you had mentioned the sheriff's department. Uh, nobody wants to be a jailer for 25 years under the, under the current conditions. But uh, we're in the process of building a, a new jail 
which will require less manpower, which will be uh, state-of-the-art uh, for housing folks, and also not just the folks that you're housing, but also the people that have to monitor them. So, I mean, if you look at uh, the conditions that the sheriffs are, are working every day on, uh, they're not good. As a matter of fact, I'm pleased uh, that the administration and the commission came together. There was uh, the Marine Patrol from the Sheriff's Department were actually walking on pallets to go out and get in a boat and go out and pull up bodies out the river. I mean, that's not the way you treat employees. Hmm. They currently have a double-wide trailer, which is going to be replaced. We just voted on that uh, to put a triple-wide in. Uh, but uh, the ground, I mean, the raccoons are crawling up through the floor. And these are people that actually do... They're, they're basic people that go out and, and, and save lives. And, and so when you look at the, for example, the Henry Ruff, where the clerk and the, and the sheriffs have a satellite building, uh, you know, that building is, is, is horrible. And, and quite frankly, we can't wait till tomorrow. We got to start doing things today. Uh, you know, the, the, the gun range, the, the, uh, lights, the, the toilets, everything is, is so outdated. It's mm. terrible. So, you know, we're in the process uh, of uh, trying to do the funding and, and trying to uh, get everybody on board to try to make life better for employees of Wayne County. Yeah. Um, we should note that uh, Louis Aguilar, who's a reporter for the Detroit News, uh, was the person who reported this one in four jobs uh, being short. Um, but I, I wonder if um, if you can talk about the possibility, I guess, that Wayne County is competing with jobs or with, with neighboring counties for people to fill these jobs. Is, is this a question of uh, other counties doing better by their employees than we do here in Wayne? Well, not necessarily. And, and quite frankly, uh, I, I, uh, I'm a sheriff's reserve, and I ride with, with them to try to learn and to try to grow as a person. Um, and we had a young man that was riding, you know, doing undercover work uh, with the sheriffs. And the next time we went on patrol, I said, well, where, you know, we use a nickname for him. And where's he at? Well, he left and went to Detroit PD. Um, and, you know, they paid a little bit more money. And, and so the other thing, too, when you first hire him on, on the – the obligation for the county is to, uh, we're we're obligated to to have uh, uh, our sheriffs are uh, jailers first of all, and but nobody wants to be a jailer for twenty five years. So you have to offer other things. It's not just about the money. Uh, you know, secondary road patrols is a plus for the county. Uh, Marine patrol is a plus for the county. Uh, doing parks, doing undercover. Uh, uh, things once a week is, is a plus for the county because that way it allows those, you know, uh, sheriffs slash jailers to get out and actually do some other law enforcement and make them feel a little bit more fulfilled. Uh, so it's not just money. It's also health care. We've got to make sure that we provide proper health care for, for employees. And, and we've got to be competitive. But competitive is not just in wages. That's what a lot of people aren't talking about. Sure. It's also their, their work environment. So, so uh, the, the county in recent years has faced a lot of pressure, a lot of financial pressure, uh, to lower costs. And uh, that includes in employee costs. And the county executive, Warren Evans, has done a lot to 
to negotiate with employees and and also just kind of make some decisions about uh, how much cost there can be given the, the the financial restraints. Can you talk about that tension and 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 how we relieve that in order, as you point out, to be able to do better by by employees to keep more of them? Well, the thing of it is, again, uh, I think uh, certainly Mr. Evans and, and also the commission, uh, we we are working together to uh, to try to retain employees, to try to hire new employees, and it's not just the sheriff's office. Uh, we have uh, half the auditors, and I chair audit for Wayne County, we have half the auditors that we had, you know, uh, 10, 12 years ago. And and yet we save with just eight uh, auditors, we actually, uh, with 1.7 million in, in efficiencies, and actually last year uh, we had 100% compliance. So when you, when you work together, uh, you know, in the sheriff's department, the thing of it is, uh, we, as governing, you know, I vote, I'm one of, of 14 commissioners, I'm sorry, 15 commissioners that, that uh, vote on on contracts and, and all those sorts of things. But uh, you need to work with the administration. The administration needs to work with us. We've had our moments where the administration didn't. And, and now it's, I, and I honestly believe it's as, probably as good as, it's, as I've seen it, that we actually are working together. We are getting things done. We're, we're, on an increase in trying to hire more employees, uh, and and that requires training. And also, uh, to be a sheriff, you don't have to be MCOL certified, but we're paying for their for their schooling uh, to go to Schoolcraft College, become uh, MCOL certified. There's a lot of things that we are doing uh, that you know don't make the headlines. That actually, uh, where the commission and the administration work together to try to retain employees and hire new employees. Mm-hmm. And that's in all departments. That's DPW. That's that's, that's uh, yeah. Uh, again, staffing, all sorts of staffing. But the sheriff's is certainly a, a high priority. Sure, uh, I'm talking with Raymond Basham. He's a Wayne County Commissioner for District 14. We're talking about the staffing shortage that uh, Wayne County faces. One in four county jobs, according to a report in the Detroit News is vacant. Uh, what do we do uh, to fill those jobs? Uh, what kind of effects are the emptiness uh, of those jobs having on service delivery here in Wayne County? Uh, would love to hear from you, the listeners as well. Give us a call and let us know how you think we ought to fill these jobs. If you're noticing uh, the effects of these job shortages, uh, also would love to hear from folks if you work here in Wayne County, uh, what that looks like uh, from your side. Uh, Ray, can you talk a little more about the effects outside of the sheriff's office for service delivery? Uh, how would uh, people how would people be able to see the impact this is having? Well, the thing of it is, you know, we get a lot of calls, uh, you know, about, and I'll give you an example, about potholes, about, uh, about, People are complaining about how bad the roads were, and then you start fixing them. And then we're, now we're getting calls, a lot of calls on, you know, you've shut down this road. I can't get to work. I got to take a different road. Uh, all this stuff. If you're in government, you're always going to get calls and complaints, and, and you try to respond as best you can. You're not going to fix everything immediately, but if you move in the right direction, if you try to do the best you can with your job and work with others, then you do get some things done, basically. Yeah. But, uh, 
I, I'm going to go back uh, to the phones here. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, you know, I noticed that um, county government seems to be the one I like the least uh, in terms of getting things done. Um, a lot of county roads have sidewalks that are all broken up and stuff like that. And um, there's always, every time you call about it, they say that there's no money. And uh, the, your guest said, um, you know, we have money to house um, inmates. And I was struck by that word. I thought, you know, house them or rehabilitate them. Um, should, isn't there a way that maybe we can um, train people that are incarcerated to either do some of the physical work or some of the office work that needs to be done? And, you know, how, give them a skill set so that they can be reintroduced back into society. Mm. Uh, a great question, Robert. I think we should note before I have Ray Basham answer that most of the people who are housed in the Wayne County Jail are pretrial inmates. In other words, they are not people who've been convicted and sentenced to, to, to be in prison. Uh, they're just being held, waiting for the process to play out. And, and so uh, there is less of an eye toward you know long-term uh, programming and things like that. It is really about housing, and, and I think we do a pretty bad job, actually, of expediting things in the criminal justice system so people don't sit there for a really long time. But uh, Ray Basham, uh, I'll give you a chance to answer as well. We've only got about a minute and a half left, though. Yeah, I, I actually agree with him, except, uh, again, like you said, it's short term. Uh, I had actually talked to uh, uh, Mayor Duggan about uh, people that are actually, if, you've, uh, if you're a felon, if you fill out an application to get a job and you're a felon, usually you get, uh, you know, denied. And so Wayne County, City of Detroit, and others, now that's not going to be where you have to check the, the box to, to get a job. We as a society was actually pushing people because of that uh, check in the box was pushing people back out on the streets and eventually they wound up doing the same thing because they can't find a job because they can't be employed. So I still think we should partner with Wayne County Community College, the county, uh, city of Detroit and others to try to, to rehab and create uh, jobs for people. There's good paying jobs uh, like uh, arborists and things like that, all sorts of good paying jobs. Uh, if you give folks, folks some training and, and uh, you know, I, I'm a former employee of Ford Motor Company. We used to have a 58 skilled trades. Now they got less than eight. So if you're not, if you're not teaching people to be skilled trades person, uh, everybody, uh, you know, the society don't need everybody that goes to college. Some folks need to have a skill set that actually allows them to make a decent living and have yeah. health care and raise a family. Yeah. Okay, Ray Basham, uh, Wayne County Commissioner for District 14. Really great to have you here to talk about this issue. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Sure. Have a great day. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about what President Joe Biden says during the State of the Union, which is scheduled for later today. If you like this show and enjoy listening to the program in general, you ought to share it with your friends, your relatives, maybe even people you just kind of met. And maybe they're not sure if they're friends of yours yet. Uh, you can find us on WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can download wherever you get podcasts. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.